This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Welcome to the first of a new series of LRB podcasts of Close Readings, in which we discuss the life and works of American and British and other poets who wrote in English from the long 20th century, drawing on the uh, extensive history of pieces published in the LRB, critical, essayistic, biographical, about the great writers of the age. My name is Seamus Perry. I teach English at Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, a poet and professor at University College London. And today we're talking about Gerald Manley Hopkins, who isn't really a poet of the 20th century, strictly speaking, I suppose, since he was born in 1844. But in some ways, Mark, he is still considerable as a 20th century poet. He's one of those strange poets like um, Emily Dickinson would be another example, who was unpublished pretty much uh, during the time that all their poems were written, um, who then suddenly strike a later age as having all sorts of things that that, they, that age is interested in. So um, Hopkins died in uh, 1889 and his executor was Robert Bridges. Uh, and Bridges waited almost 30 years before bringing Hopkins's poems before the public. Um, by the time he did, Bridges was Poet Laureate. So there was a bit of... Um, a push to them from his reputation. And even after they came out in 1918, I think the first edition of 750 copies took 10 years to sell out. But it, it was during the 30s, a lot of the major modernist uh, critics and poets became interested in Hopkins. So you get pieces by I.A. Richards, F.R. Leavis, uh, William Empson, Herbert Reed. And these were all sort of Eliot educated critics. And they were um, excited by the um, intensity of Hopkins's poetry. And I think it, it's combination of extreme verbal kind of compression along with a real formal rigour. And that kind of uh, connected with, with the kind of modernist ideal of a really sort of a, a tightly woven poem, nothing too flabby or Tennysonian or Swinburnian. So we have a poet who in many ways f feels one of the modernists, and yet, of course, his real origins, his, his real lineage is is solidly Victorian. So perhaps we should start by talking, as it were, about his Victorian identity before maybe moving on to how he uh, um, acquires a kind of modernity. He was a Victorian. He was an odd Victorian. <laughs> I think we're agreed on that, that one of the things I guess that happens to poets like Hopkins and Dickinson is they become canonical and uh, everyone gets used to the way they write. But when you look back at them and think of them writing, the first reaction, which was the reaction of Robert Bridges or uh, Hopkins's friends, R.W. Dixon or Coventry Patmore, the, the, the small circle of people who saw his poetry, it was, this stuff is weird. <laughs> there is no way to account for what this poetry is doing or understanding exactly 
uh, how Hopkins could have uh, invented such an, a bizarre and baroque and original idiom, and also how he could have thought other people might want to read it. I mean, Br- Bridges was famously sceptical, particularly about the wreck of the Deutschland, which is seen by many as Hopkins's great long poem. He he called it in his edition of 1918 a great dragon, uh, uh, which was guarding the kind of portals of Ho- Hopkins's work, uh, and he advised readers to skip it. Uh, so Bridges was fascinated by Hopkins, but he was by no means an uncritical admirer. And, and um, in many ways, mo- modern opinion is that Bridges was wrong about the wreck of the Deutschland. Mm. Um, uh, but let's not forget how un- extraordinarily original and unusual uh, the poetic idiom that Hopkins um, evolved is. Um, and that Bridges is right, um, that there, there's, there was no market for this kind of stuff in the 18. Um, uh, 70s and 80s. So let's um, just say something about how he, how he gets t- to that position, how he gets there. He's born in 1844, as I said at the beginning. Uh, the family moved to Hampstead in 1852, and he's at Highgate School. Um, his dad is actually quite well-to-do, isn't he? He's made quite a lot of money out of marine insurance, um, and they have um, the, the life of a happy, successful, middle-class Victorian family with trips to Europe and walking tours and so on. And the young Hopkins is um, a, a, an ambitious juvenile poet who writes um, a lot of poems, at least those that have survived, sort of in the mode of Keats. Yes. Um, he's the eldest of nine children, so it was a very substantial uh, family. Um, and... Uh, Yes, his father, it's, it's worth pointing out, given Hopkins's own obsession with wrecks, um, his father was a, an, an insurer of, of sea, of vessels, sea vessels. So both of them made money out of wrecks or no, Hopkins made poetic, um, poetic capital out of wrecks and his dad made um, real capital out of wrecks. Um, and um, Hopkins was rather... Scornful, I think, of his father's bourgeois, mercantile, capitalist upbringing, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, li- livelihood, and was himself an aesthete. And I think that comes over in those, those early poems, which are precocious, though. I mean, they're terrifically kind of skilled and effective, if not really very personal. And um, so there's this strange contrast between these poems, which are good examples of the to borrow Hopkins's own term, Parnassian, they somehow mirror much of the kind of Victorian idioms with a sudden emergence in the wreck of the Deutschland of a, a kind of poetry which seems to um, be operating according to wholly different kind of criteria. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's a he's a, clearly a, a very bright boy. He's he's a gifted artist, isn't he? His drawings are are, are ter- terrific. As a young man, he's writing, you know, doing extraordinarily beautiful drawings. Uh, but he's also academically very gifted. He wins a scholarship to Balliol. He gets a first in in the first public examination in eighteen sixty four. Jowett, who's the who's the the leading tutor of Balliol, is reported as saying that he's the star of Balliol. And it's while he's at Oxford as an undergraduate he meets Bridges, who you've mentioned already, who is not at Balliol, is at Corpus Christi College, but is uh, um, another poet, and and they befriend one another in a way which lasts for the rest of their lives, even though they're quite dissimilar people. Um, but he also meets uh, this character called Digby Mackworth Dolben, um, who, although he barely knows this guy, who is a friend of Bridges, Bridges introduces them, they've both been at Eton together. Um, even though Hopkins barely knows this guy, he seems to have had a, arguably quite a decisive effect upon his life at this point. 
Well, biographers kind of uh, see Dolben, Digby Dolben, as the, the the clue in some ways to Hopkins's exploration uh, of his own uh, sexuality, which we, you can't really avoid in discussion of Hopkins, though Hopkins himself <laughs> avoided it completely and possibly wouldn't even have been aware of the kind of queer terms in which he's construed by many of his readers these days who, who see his work as a kind of... Um, Helen Vendler makes this point, doesn't she, in her piece in the LRB, that they see the energies of his poetry as deriving from a kind of um, deflected uh, homoeroticism. And there's no doubt that Hopkins was massively aesthetically attracted to young men and not at all attracted to women. Um, And Digby Dolben uh, was, like Hopkins, high church veering towards Catholicism. He took it even further. He used to wear a monk's outfit and walk around barefoot. Um, And it's odd if you kind of read about the Oxford of those days and the circles in which they move, there's a sense in which Anglo-Catholic stroke gay was the atmosphere in which they were moving. Another friend that he met there and was close to was Walter Pater, uh, who was also a a confirmed bachelor. Um, So Hopkins is moving in in circles which nowadays would be called kind of um, uh, uh, gay circles uh, of very intellectual aesthetes who were also fanatic in a way which is is perhaps hard for the modern day reader to understand about which kind of Christianity you adopted. So going over to Rome was the big question uh, that dominated these uh, people's kind of um, intellectual and emotional trajectories. And Dolbin was going to go over to Rome. Uh, unfortunately, he drowned um, And uh, Hopkins, in his kind of a letter about that, says, I look forward more than anything to him becoming a Catholic. (laughs) So the idea of Digby Dolben and uh, and Hopkins somehow sharing their religious um, beliefs as Catholics was... Uh, um, was a kind of ideal or vision for him. But it it was an enormous, enormously um, charged decision that, that Hopkins made. So when he told his parents he was going to become a Catholic, um, that, that wasn't, you know, that really wasn't like saying I'm going to Ibiza on holiday. That was a rejection of all they stood for and they were mortally wounded and upset. Um, and it, it was very, very distressing for them. It's also a very um, trenchant or tendentious decision to make within Oxford, isn't it? Because there were other kinds of Christianity, as it were, on offer in Oxford. And Jower, uh, um, Hopkins' uh, admiring tutor, represented the alternative, didn't he? Which was a kind of extremely liberal theology, also represented maybe by another Bagel figure like Matthew Arnold, who thought that there were possibilities of, of, of keeping all sorts of aspects of Christianity alive while dropping all the metaphysical bag- baggage. And that felt in some sort of self-conscious way like the more modern kind of Christianity. And so Hopkins' decision to, to go to move to Rome in this way, following Newman to Rome in this way, is, is, a, is a very um, uh, determined and explicit and emphatic decision not to take the route of modernity. Yes, it, and the notion was the Catholic Church was the one that connected to the original fathers of the church, so that there was a kind of authenticity there. And, and Hopkins did believe that Protestants, however kind of, you know, believing... <laughs> they were, would go to hell when they died. Uh, and, you know, when he breaks the news to his parents, they say, you're leaving us. And he says, no, no, you you become Catholics and join me. Um, and so he, he was very dogmatic about that. And I think this decision, which is the crucial decision of his whole life, 
is it worth talking a little bit about before we move on to the poetry because it dramatizes the extent to which he was both a contrarian i mean a rebel somebody who was defying all that was expected of him I mean, it meant that he couldn't get a job that would earn money he was exiled from a lot of the society in which he'd moved that he was somehow a real oddball um at the same time, becoming a Catholic and then a Jesuit a couple of years later involved complete obedience to the um, uh, the rituals of the Jesuit calendar. Um, uh, so the ways in which Hopkins' poetry is both formally kind of recognisable, they're, they're mainly sonnets or odes, most of them, a lot, an awful lot of them are sonnets, and yet they don't look like sonnets, uh, and they use this uh, very bizarre Baroque language. Um, is somehow uh, an acting out of that schism between the contrarian Hopkins and the obedient Hopkins. Yes. Um, you don't need to be a profound psychologist to speculate that someone who craves authority is someone who recognises them, themselves a kind of wildness or a kind of uh, uh, errancy that needs to be corrected or needs to be brought into obedience. Yeah, the, the discipline is is extreme. And the kind of great symbolic gesture which um, exemplified this was what he called the slaughter of the innocents. Um, as a sort of take on the bonfire of the vanities. And actually, Do Dil Digby Dolben and Hopkins were both great admirers of Savonarola, uh, the original who, of the bonfire of the vanities. And aesthetics, and, and this is where Hopkins' poetry becomes so interesting, that the aesthetic life was seen as inherently guilty, somehow involved in transgression of some kind. And he would impose on himself these strange penances, such as walking for six months, looking down, uh, forbidding himself to look at nature from which he got so much pleasure. And he would also wear hair shirts and I forget what they're called, though, these kind of things you wear around your thigh. Well, I don't, but other people, uh, he did, uh, which dig into your thigh and kind of um, remind you of, of the penance uh, of, of the early saints. So it was quite a kind of literal attempt to recreate the life of the early saints and uh, and the ideal of the martyr. Yes, he says rather poignantly in his journal about that penance where he's forced to look at the ground most of the time, that it prevented me seeing much that half year. And as you say, for a person who absolutely, uh, you know, adored the, the visual world, which is maybe a theme we'll come back to, that must have been a penance indeed. So he's joined the Catholic Church. He's received into it by Newman in the, at the Birmingham Oratory on the 21st of October, 1866, which is Coleridge's birthday. I don't know if you knew that. He teaches at Birmingham for a bit. And then, as you said a moment ago, he decides to become a priest. Um, and he burns the poems because, as he explains to Bridges, I saw they would interfere with my state and vocation. And there's some hesitancy about what kind of priest he's going to become. Is he going to become a Benedictine monk? No, he's going to become a Jesuit, which is about the most severe uh, training and, and life that you could choose from that spectrum. Um, he has training at Roehampton. He then has extensive training at Stonyhurst. And this is a very tough intellectually and emotionally and spiritually kind of exhausting and 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 in some senses kind of catastrophic training for him isn't it they would have 30 day retreats and and you were on retreat and and you would uh, not talk to anyone uh, or live in uh, meditate on the on the uh, on the gospels or the passion um and yes it, it and in a way the discipline was important to him because um, he felt art was was dangerous. 
Um, he, he talks about it, putting a strain upon the passions which I, which I should think it unsafe to encounter. If he allowed his artistic sensibility free reign, who knows what would happen? And again, if we can't help thinking about this in erotic terms, that, that somehow the love of beauty um, would extend to sensuality of some kind. And he was very much always chastising himself for sensuality of any kind. Of, it might tempt him to... Uh, where I think you can decode his notebooks and work out that he's sort of tempted to commit the sin of onanism, uh, which uh, he saw as a great sin. Uh, so all kind of erotic or sexual self-expression was v- really very strictly forbidden. And he saw characters such as Shakespeare's Beatrice as a, an evil, wicked woman <laughs> for tempting Benedict to his doom in some way. Um, so th- there was perhaps, I wouldn't necessarily say a strain of misogyny in the circles in which he moved that might be going too far but the women he liked were the women like the five nuns who were drowned uh on the deutschland which was the uh poem which it is that the dragon at the at the kind of gates of of hopkins's poetic oeuvre so perhaps we should think about how that came to be written yes okay so he's been as i say for some years at roehampton then he says three years doing philosophy at stonyhurst and then the next move after another little stay at roehampton as a teacher this time is to go to north wales where the jesuits had their theological seminary and he moves there in 1874 and at the very almost at the very end of 1875 the 5th of december some news comes through which is that a boat called the deutschland has sunk so could you tell us something about the backstory to that? Uh, yes, this is covered in Patricia Beer's um, uh, piece in the LRB. She reviews a terrific book by Sean Street, which gives you a, a really full account of the Deutschland, which was a boat uh, which was taking immigrants from from Germany to America. And um, uh, among the passengers were five nuns um, who were driven out of Germany because of the folk laws, that there was a kind of anti-Catholic movement um, and they had, were moving to America. And um, this boat gets caught in a terrible storm. It, the, the captain loses the way and they get stranded on the Kentish Knock. And for about 24 hours, uh, the boat is kind of bat- battered by these terrible seas and lifeboats don't arrive. I mean, and the, the nuns are below decks and one of them keeps shouting out, my God, my God, come quickly. Um, which, I mean, uh, w- one person has pointed out she may have been shouting to a, li- a lifeboat when she said that. Uh, but Hopkins interpreted it as her embracing her death and uh, a, a vision of a rapturous, sort of erotic um, descent of Christ to both kind of ravish and redeem her at the same moment. That's the kind of climax to which the poem builds. And um, he, he had this taboo on writing poetry, but his his um, superior said when he saw about the wreck of the Deutschland, he said, well, someone should write a poem about that, <laughs> Gerard. Uh, and uh, Gerard said, well, my hand is out, uh, but I'll give it a go. And What's the, the other quote he talks about, the strange haunting rhythm, a rhythm that's been haunting me? That's what I was going to ask you next. He, what he says in, the, in, the, in a letter recollecting that moment when the rector says someone should write a poem about this is that I had long had haunting my ear the echo of a new rhythm, which now I realised on paper. Um, and in the course of just a few weeks over the turn of 1875 to 76, he writes his longest poem, doesn't he? So what, um, what would you say this new rhythm was? What is new about it? Or how, do, how are we meant to understand this new kind of writing? 
Well, he writes in some detail about sprung rhythm, and I don't think we've got the kind of um, time to go into what he meant by it. Basically, it means you just count the stressed syllables. Um, and it was a way, really, of packing the line. So Hopkins's work is terrifically compressed, um, and it's alliterative, uh, and it very often um, connects with, with what he saw as the authentic, unlatinate words, the authentic British or Celtic words. He was learning Welsh at the time. The few and sinew of the English language. Yes, um, and this was a notion similar to the authenticity of the Catholic Church, the kind of authenticity of the language. But maybe I could read the first couple of stanzas of The Wreck of the Deutschland, which uh, the poem starts out in part, the, the first part is this... Um, description of a kind of spiritual dark night of the soul. And this is, Hopkins wants us to know about the spiritual dark night of the soul because uh, he he wants us to trust him as a kind of spiritual interpreter of the wreck of the Deutschland itself. So this is him presenting his sort of spiritual credentials, his, his CV, so to speak. Um, but it is so powerful and so intense that the only kind of comparisons you can think of to to the kind of poetry that's going on here is what you get in Sylvia Plath, I think, or Robert Lowell, these kind of extreme, intense, confessional poems which seem to be presenting experience in the most visceral and powerful of ways. This is... uh, 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 And... When you look at the language, you also notice the extent to which God is being figured as, not to put too uh, fine a point on it, a kind of sadomasochistic tormentor uh, and um, or sadistic tormentor. And Hopkins is somehow embracing this uh, extreme treatment he's receiving from this vast, powerful God figure. Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, World's strand, sway of the sea, lord of living and dead, thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade what with dread thy doing, and dost thou touch me afresh, over again I feel thy finger and find thee. I did say yes, O oh, at lightning and lashed rod, thou heardst me truer than tongue confess thy terror, O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls, altar and hour and night, the swoon of a heart that the sweep and the hurl of thee trod, hard down with a horror of height, and the midriff a strain with leaning of, laced with fire of stress. It does go absolutely straight into that early Robert Lowell yeah. voice, doesn't it, of a quaking graveyard at Nantucket or something like that. But he also wants us to know it. this happened. Yeah. Uh, thou knowest the walls alter an hour and night. I'm not making this up. This, and he told Bridges this in the letter. This actually happened to me. So what particular retreat he had this kind of terrible experience on or this kind of quest, this sense of being deserted by God. But one, one should kind of... Just to throw forward to the late Dublin sonnets, those are the sonnets in which he feels abandoned by God. This is the moment in which he is moving from not having God to this experience of God. The real God's physical, actual presence is kind of invading Hopkins and somehow uh, uh, um, uh, making himself so present to Hopkins that he's absolutely terrified, but realizes that this is he's face to face with his all powerful redeemer figure. So, as you were saying, part one of the of the poem, which is the shorter of the two parts, is this confessional piece where Hopkins talks in in these sort of brilliantly mystifying ways about a spiritual crisis of some kind that he's been through, and part two is 
an extraordinarily kind of imaginative and mythologizing account of the of the of the sinking of the ship and the and the behavior of the of, of the nuns on on the ship and, and the implication i suppose is that hopkins is qualified to write about the nuns in the second part because he's been through something very much like what they're going through in the first part he has been completely unmade um and that's you know my one of my favorite images in all poetry i am soft sift in an hourglass at the wall fast but mined with emotion adrift and it crowds and it combs to the fall that he is somehow completely lost all grounding and so part of hopkins experience of god is of complete surrender when talking about the submission or the obedience that involves a complete um, abandonment of selfhood to discover the self much more fully so the paradox of this weird language is that on the one hand it seems completely um, instinct with Hopkinsianness, <laughs> hikisitas is is that is that the phrase from kind of Duns Scotus th- thisness of the distinctiveness of Hopkins's own idiom. At the same time, thematically, it's all about surrendering yourself to a power beyond you uh, and complete uh, allowing yourself to be ravished by that power and letting it invade you and fulfil every sort of corpuscle of your being. Yes, that's right. So one of the key words in this poem is the word master, isn't it? Or or different different forms of the word master. And in the in the verse that you read out a moment ago, he invents this um this this new compound uh, epithet mastering me um uh, as a as a way of describing god and 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 mastery comes in um re- repeatedly in the poem in one form or another um we get um uh, at the climax of the poem um uh, an extraordinary um use of ellipsis uh, you know three dots as it were to um dramatize um, a, a gap or a hesitation in the in the as it were the present tense of the making of the poem um, but how shall i make me room there reach me a dot 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 fancy come faster strike you the sight of it look at it loom there thing that she dot 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 there then the master ipse the only one christ king head he was to cure the extremity where he had cast her so the poem begins with Hopkins acknowledging the mastery of God, and the climax of the poem is this extraordinary self-interrupting, hesitant po- um, um, verse in, in, in which he imagines her having a, ma- a vision of the master. Well, it is, and it's like leader in the swan, isn't it? That he, he descends, do, deal, lord it with living and dead, let him ride her pride in his triumph, dispatch and have done with his doom there. That this is a supernatural being descending to kind of ravish her uh, in her um, uh, extremity and it it is a kind of inter to that sense you can see the classical education that Hopkins had and there's a there's as always in Hopkins there's a mixture of the extremely um, exaggerated or baroque or even rococo and a sort of kind of naivety or a kind of simplicity in the actual um, uh, notion so Christ descends and I think his his description of the storm itself has a a, a, a a amazing kind of um, literalness, the way he describes the sea, flint, flake, black-backed in the regular blow, and the snow is wiry and white-fiery and whirlwind-swivelled snow spins to the widow-making, unchilding, unfathering deeps. That presenting the physical world, he does so with a gusto and an intensity and an originality, but also a kind of directness, a visual directness, um, and he, as you say, he wanted to be a painter. And his brother, Arthur Hopkins, was a painter. In fact, illustrated 
Hardy's Return of the Native, oh, which you may not know. I did not know that. No. So one thing that people often say about this poem in the in the commentaries about it is that it is a way of of bringing together at once the mastery of God, but also the mercy of God. And what I've always felt about the poem is I get the mastery, but I, I find the mercy a little bit more elusive. What do you think? Um, yes, I think the mercy is conceptual. <laughs> um, that uh, And Bridges particularly objected to the end in which uh, Hopkins plays a kind of, you know, a, a Catholic trick, so to speak. And he says, well, all the other people who weren't Catholics on the boat may have heard the tall nuns cry and been converted at the last minute and have gone to heaven because they've become deathbed Catholics. Also, this tall nuns cry um, is going to convert the rest of England to Catholicism at last. <laughs> so this will overturn the kind of Henry VIII and all that and the dissolution of the monasteries uh, because this tall nun cried as she was dying. So there is a kind of uh, queer patriotism going on, I find, in, in Hopkins's work, which is somewhere he, he's close to a houseman, I think, who's another kind of queer nationalist um, in the kind of vision. And both had things about soldiers, but maybe we can come on to that. But um, So the idea in the last stanza is that our king back, uh, oh, upon English souls, let him Easter in us, be a day spring to the dimness of us, be a crimson cresseted east, more brightening her, rare dear Britain. Uh, so this idea that Christ, will a Catholic Christ, will return and in England will uh, see the error of its ways. And Bridges thought this presumptuous, uh, but he spelt it wrong. And Hopkins wrote back saying, it can't be presumptuous, there's no such word. He could be a bit of a pedant at times. It's important, though, isn't it, to make that point that this is a very, uh, this is a very um, tendentiously counter-Reformation poem. Yeah. And there's a mention of Luther, isn't there, at one point? And he's rude about Luther. And this is, so this, is, this isn't um, a, a purely aesthetic piece of writing, isn't it? It's, it's not even a purely elegiac piece of writing. This is a piece of writing that's actually engaged self-consciously in a sort of doctrinal war of some kind or another. Uh, absolutely. And that's what makes the kind of Jesuit response to his poetry so bizarre, that they all completely... Thought, well, the, the word that comes up again and again in reports on him is the word eccentric. Um, he was too eccentric for this or too eccentric for that. When he goes to Dublin, they say, you'll find him a bit eccentric. Um, uh, but he submitted this actually to Coleridge's uh, grandnephew, Ernest Coleridge, who, who couldn't make head nor tail of it and send it back. Um, and Hopkins had everything turned down by the Jesuit kind of editors to whom he sent things. He even tried to write one for a kind of a Stonyhurst May Magnificat a celebration of Mary and everyone else got their poems tacked up. But Hopkins's got rejected. So it must have been quite sort of gruelling for him to be aware that he had was in command of or had evolved this idiom of fantastic originality and power, but to have no one be appreciated except Bridges and Dixon, who was a nice guy. Dixon had taught Hopkins at um, Highgate and, and was a, obviously a clearly nice bloke, but he was rather baffled. And unfortunately, Dixon himself wrote extraordinarily long poems on kind of 
obscure themes which he would send to Hopkins asking him to criticise them and Hopkins would go through them line by line. Vendler is very funny about this in her piece in the LRB. He would go through them line by line saying, this is no good, this is no good, you've got to change this. Um, Dixon must have got these things back and said, why did I bother? But Hopkins was n- did nothing by half measures. I think that's one way of, of, of putting the kind of person he was. He, no, he, he was an extremist. That's absolutely right. And Vendler says in that piece, doesn't she, that he is a poet of extremes. He's in that kind of extreme kind of romantic tradition of Blake or or Hart Crane, although obviously coming from a t- totally different religious or, or, or sort of doctrinal position. So and once he got going, the Wreck of the Deutschland sort of got going and he suddenly thought, I'm onto something. And he wrote the... In some ways, you, you can map Hopkins' life in terms of his postings, over which he had no say. You would you would get a message from the Jesuit hierarchy that you were off to Wales or Liverpool or Glasgow in the afternoon, and you'd be off by evening. And there was absolutely uh, no say, oh, I don't quite want to go there. Uh, it was complete obedience. But while he was in Wales, uh, he wrote you know, some of the most glorious sonnets in the, in, in the language, God's Grandeur, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Spring... Uh, Hurrahing in Harvest, one of my favourite. The Wind Hover, um, very famous one. Um, they're all kind of um, amazingly um, precise in their descriptions of beauty, but always that beauty is then converted into a, a, a dialectic which is illustrating the greatness and power of God. And we should also say, just in passing, shouldn't we, that at, at the same time, um, I mean, throughout his life, discontinuously, but especially in, in in this Welsh period, he's writing amazing journals, journals of natural, well, the same kind of interpolated natural description and religious reflection. Um, uh, just as an example, there's a lovely uh, description of the um, of, of the landscape he he sees from the, the college. The clouds westwards were a pied piece, sail-coloured brown and milky blue, a dun-yellow tent of rays opened upon the skyline far off. Cobalt blue was poured on the hills, bounding the valley of the Cluid, and far in the south spread a bluish damp, but all the nearer valley was, sh- was showered with tapered diamond flakes of fields in purple and brown and green." And you can see when you read that kind of description, the, 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 the truth and the thing that he was once reported to have said, which is that he had originally wanted to be a painter. Yeah. I, I mean, it's very Paterian as well, isn't it? It just shows the his reading of the Renaissance and the, the Paterian aestheticism. Hahn, I mean, the, the, the thing about the Renaissance, which caused such a fuss, was that it was... Uh, it, unanchored to morality and religion. It said you enjoy these things for their own sakes. And that was exactly what Hopkins was reacting against. So he takes the Paterian uh, diction and vocabulary and fine writing, the purple prose, so to speak. And he harnesses it to uh, delivering God's God's message. Uh, it bu- He buckles it, <laughs> to use the phrase um, from the Windhover. He buckles it to God's truth being existence which is then experienced in the poem yes that's right john bailey says in his lrp lrb piece about hopkins that that perhaps one reason why why hopkins wanted to find god in nature was because otherwise nature became uh, just a world of impressions 
uh, you know, perhaps striking or beautiful impressions, but nevertheless merely subjective things, and somehow have, finding God in it kind of gave it a sort of a substance or, or a richness or a thereness that otherwise um, disappeared in the paterite, you know, flux yeah. of one thing after another. Well, I think that's why the modernists liked him, because it's about meaning and discovery of meaning. You think of kind of, you know, the way Pound, who also experimented with authentic archaic languages and things like the seafarer, um, the Pound would reduce reduce a poem to the apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bough would reduce them to that that particular crystallization and the meaningfulness of that um and hopkins's nature is insistently overwhelmingly meaningful and the poem enacts the discovery of the meaning and not only the the discovery of it the kind of communication of it to you as the reader in the poetry so it's and that's sort of what he means by in stress and in scape two words that are sort of bedevil Hopkins scholarship, don't they? But somehow that you capture the quintessence of something and and are able to kind of pass it on through the transmission of its energies. Yes, that's right. So anyone who goes away after this podcast and reads in Hopkins' own journals will see that he uses words, the words inscape and instress, both as nouns and as verbs, um, a lot. Um, and... Uh, at the risk of sounding as if I know what I'm talking about. Um, Inscape seems to be, um, as it were, the innermost innate sort of structure or pattern that that shapes a a natural object or a scene or a a tree or a leaf or a river or whatever it might be. And instress seems to be the kind of divine kind of God-given energy that sustains that shape, sustains that kind of that that inner inner pattern or or, or that um, inner, inner structure. And both of these ideas seem to be Hopkins's own invention, don't they? But the, but they they draw a lot on on the thirteenth century philosopher who you mentioned a moment ago, Duns Scotus, who was um, an Oxford philosopher who uh, um, Hopkins revered, um, and he's an unusual thinker, as I as I gather from reading the literature, because he he insisted upon what he calls the principle of individuation, that what mattered about the, the world was that things were individual and particular and um, themselves and idiosyncratic and that you could reach to universal truth like the truths of God or something through the agency of really absolutely and completely imaginatively apprehending individual things in their own uniqueness and individuality and Hopkins just goes a blast on this idea well you get in the way the sonnets work the octave gives you the perceptions and then the sestet gives you the interpretation of it in relation to God shall we look at one as Kingfisher's character fire is the most obvious sort of dramatization of the scotus ideal as kingfishers catch fire dragonflies draw flame as tumbled over rim in roundy wells stones ring like each tucked string tells each hung bells bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name each mortal thing does one thing and the same Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes its self, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I mean, that's pure illustration of what you've been talking about. But the sestet then goes on, I say more. This is the sermon, the sermonist in Hopkins saying, you know, another point, uh, dearly beloved, uh, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ, 
for Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. So you get the kind of economy whereby Christ is present in the human uh, and then goes on to the God the Father. It's a kind of you know divine economy, a, a sort of virtuous circle of kind of the divine circulating. Uh, from God through Christ to, to mankind and on again, uh, and that's all in that's all an illustration of nature's ability to sing itself, to perform itself, and the poem is performing it. I mean, they are performances, aren't they? In the most kind of operatic and extravagant of ways, they are, and they, and, and they take they take the form of the sermon and and do something sensational with it, don't they? In the sense that you know, the, the form that sermons, as you know, Alan Bennett told us, and Beyond the Fringe and so on, the form. That sermons normally take as an anecdote from life about as it were leaving the railway station by the wrong exit and and someone shouting where do you think you're going and then from this anecdote you turn and you draw a a homiletic reflection upon it where do you want where do we think we're going and that's kind of the structure of this sonnet isn't it Mm. it's 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 extraordinarily vivid rather kind of hallucinatory description of the light effects of kingfishers and dragonflies as kingfishers catch fire which is you know a brilliantly kind of figurative description of of the of the flash of their of their blue feathers as they cross over a pond or a stream dragonflies draw flame um and and then the natural description as you say is then turned in this uh, in this um, entirely kind of priestly or sermonistic way in the sestet to um, as it were, a religious purpose. And these extravagant metaphors which kind of develop it and and also the ways in which the, the, the in, internal rhymes are going on all the time. This patterning is absolutely... I think it's compulsive for Hopkins. I think it is as that's where the juice <laughs> lies for him somehow, the pleasure that he gets out of these internal rhymes and the way the, that, that he compresses language is it's like Mozart composing his symphonies. He's getting a kick out of it. And it's a kick which he has to believe is doing God's service. You can't just have it because you're getting a kick out of it. So, yes, you could read this in a kind of 60s druggy way, <laughs> but you'd be getting it wrong. That's not how Hopkins kind of experienced it. Although it is visionary and mystical in all sorts of ways, it then always becomes doctrinal. And it's guilty if it's not doctrinal. So the poems that don't get finished um, are often are because he's unable to kind of make the connection between the sensual experience um, and the doctrinal meaning which he's trying to impose or um, in- inscribe on that that experience. It's an interesting uh, point, isn't it? Because it, it might imply that a lot of the time there is a kind of a tension between between the sheer, uh, you know, exuberant um, evocation of. Um, this sort of natural experience, this sort of vividly um, keen um, sensory experience and the uh, doctrinal duty to which it's meant to be put. There's a a kind of a a tension between those two things, which sometimes he can't resolve. Sometimes the sheer exuberance of sensory experience is just too much for him to, to, to buckle in. That becomes particularly evident when he's writing poems about beautiful young men. Uh, Something like the, the bugler's first communion. Yes. Let's look at that one. Is a good example of how the, the overwhelming beauty um, of this bugler who is asking for his you know first communion, which um, and Hopkins is the priest in he 's moved from Wales to Oxford at this point he 's got two years in in Oxford, and he gets to give him his first communion, which is a kind of holy moment that he 's giving what 
he describes he describes the wafer low latched in leaf light housel his two huge godhead so that's you know god compressed into a wafer which i suppose could be seen as the the, the dominant sort of metaphor for all of hopkins's poetry the way in which the wafer is god is the body of god that you are ingesting at the communion um but he he gets really rather sort of um excited at the breathing bloom of a chastity in man sex fine um, and um, this this gorgeous young young man whom he's administering the host to, he compares uh, to a pushed peach. He yields tender as a pushed peach um, to all that Hopkins teaches him. Um, and uh, there's a sense in which the the kind of an erotic transaction is being is mimetic of the ways in which the spiritual. Uh, the spiritual is being ministered, is being presented to the to the young bugler, uh, and Hopkins was so excited about this that he couldn't bear to think of this bugler later in life somehow sullying his, his gorgeous innocence. And he says to Bridges in the letter that accompanied the poem, "I hope he dies in Afghanistan <laughs> um, before he's you know had a chance to to start sleeping with women or anything like that." I suppose there's a long tradition, isn't there, of thinking about religious experience in erotic terms. But mm. what's peculiar about this is that. It, you can't imagine that Hopkins would conceivably have accepted that these were erotic terms. It's, it's one of those areas that the Victorian era somehow eludes us. I mean, you, we read in memoriam and think, well, surely they thought that Tennyson's relationship with Hallam was was a little bit more intense than it should be. And in fact, Hallam's father did complain slightly, um, uh, didn't he, about that? But I mean, Whitman is someone whom... Uh, Hopkins once compared himself. He says, you know, um, my mind is more like Whitman's than anyone else. And since Whitman was a great scoundrel, <laughs> that's a rather terrible thing to admit. But actually, in terms of Whitman's own poetry, it wasn't the Calamus poems about beautiful young men which caused a scandal. It was the ones about heterosexual experiences about which he didn't know a great deal, which kind of had Emerson and all the reviewers upset. Mm. And, and so the extent to which male friendship in the Victorian era was permissible uh, and the expression of it in in the most intense and um, seemingly to us homoerotic of ways didn't 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 cause a, a fuss. But we think Bridges probably understood. Bridges was a doctor and understood the kind of um, the uh, different categories of human sexuality. He probably understood Hopkins's leanings. I think he he had the tabs on Dolbund. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and, and so Hopkins returns to Oxford, not very kind of happily, really. He has two years there on the outskirts. He, he like um, uh, Ruskin, he complains the fact that the beautiful grey towers of Oxford are being encroached upon by industrialism. So another aspect of the kind of queer nationalism will be the kind of queer not in my back, queer nimbyism, <laughs> which you get in Hopkins, that somehow he's got a vision, almost a medieval vision of England. Um, and that 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 is starkly um, in contrast, as you said, modernity and all the, all that late late nineteenth century culture, the directions in which it's heading. Yes. So in in this Oxford period, which is sort of eighteen seventy eight seventy nine, he writes the Bugler's First Communion, we just talked about, and, and quite a few other poems. It's quite a productive time in his life, isn't it? He writes a poem called Dunn's Scotus's Oxford, which is actually about uh, how Oxford is no longer Dunn's Scotus's Oxford because it's got a horrid brickish um, um, sort of suburban fringe to it, which he doesn't like. Um, but he also writes a, a really lovely poem, which, of course, is very popular, called Binsey Poplars. Binsey's a little um, kind of hamlet out, just outside Oxford. 
and um, he goes there on a, on a walk in 1879, and the poplars have been cut down. I think, actually, strictly speaking, they've just been um, pruned back, which is what you're meant to do with poplars. <laughs> but anyway, it becomes um, uh, um, a, a, a different kind of a poem w within his um, oeuvre. It becomes a kind of environmentalist poem, almost, a kind of proto-environmentalist poem. He couldn't bear seeing trees cut down. Mm. It was one of the kind of, you know, things in his life that mm. he couldn't bear it. So uh, when these trees are cut down, it it's both a kind of tragedy to him, but it also inspires him to recreate them poetically um, incredibly fully. My aspen's deer, whose airy cages quelled, quelled or quenched in leaves the leaping sun all felled felled are all felled of a fresh and following folded rank not spared not one that dandled a sandaled shadow that swam or sank on meadow and river and wind wandering weed winding bank i mean hopkins just holds nothing back that that's one of the reasons i think that one sort of reads him open-mouthed, that he just, he turns the amp up to 11 <laughs> every time. Uh, he, there's no kind of irony. And I think that might be why John Bailey, in his interesting piece, actually doesn't like Hopkins. He says that you enjoy Hopkins in adolescence, but afterwards uh, you don't enjoy him so much. I mean, he's generalising here about his own experience that somehow he doesn't have the same kind of satisfactions because there's something so full on about it mm. um, that once you've experienced it, it, it's got no inside or it doesn't develop. He says the wreck of the Deutschland, um, uh, once you've got the hang of it, isn't actually a very interesting poem. Um, but that's to look for an inside in the poems, which I think is not what they're about. And I think one of the aspects of their modernity is their the extent to which they are happening fully on the surface all the time, then they're not, they're, there's no kind of inner sort of secret there um, of, of some kind of private life. The, pri the privacy is all dramatised and in the language itself. Yes, and that's part of the ext extremity, isn't it? I think that, that, that feature. There's a um, um, terrific note, um, journal entry um, about six years before, just picking up on your point about how he hated to see trees cut down. Um, and there's an ash tree outside his window that's been cut down by someone. And he writes in his journal, I heard the sound, and looking out and seeing it maimed, that's the tree, uh, there came at that moment a great pang, and I wished to die, and not to see the inscapes of the world destroyed anymore. You, you have, uh, so often with Hopkins, you have the sense of a person who had absolutely no middle ground. Yeah. Uh, there must be an exhausting kind of <laughs> exhausting existence to, to yeah. pursue. Well, that goes into the, one of his most popular poems, doesn't it? Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Uh, leaves like things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? Uh, which was much enjoyed by kind of modernist critics such as kind of um, uh, Richards and um, I think Empson. Um, it, it's um, that's, in that sense, it's a it's a quite straightforward nature poem. But the kind of twists and the the, the kind of unusualness of the idiom gives it a, a really personal pathos. And I think. To that extent, the originality of Hopkins, the individuality, the distinctiveness, you read a bit of Hopkins, as with Dickinson, no one else writes like that. It just, it, there is no Parnassian happening. It's just, it's all, it's all that person and only that person. And Hopkins was unable to write, you know, uh, ordinary stuff after his, his, it, 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 I think it was, um, uh, 
was it Martin Amos? Kingsley Amos said to Martin Amos, he can't write a sentence. He got up and left the door. He got up and left the room, closing the door behind him. Hopkins is particularly incapable of writing an ordinary sentence. It's all got to be charged with the grandeur of God. And I think that's what makes it so wearing. And I think that's what possibly appeals to, uh, or in Bailey's reading, to the adolescent reader, the intensity and the freshness and the importance that somehow all of this stuff matters so much. It does depend, doesn't it, on on an on a um, an unceasing moment to moment inventiveness. Mm. It has to be, you know, it has to be, a, 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 as it were, my, you know, minute examples of, of of brilliant inventiveness at every point. Uh, it has no home idiom, no. really. And and I think also it's up to the dark sonnets. It's so dependent on the visual and on making links between the visual and connection. It's like a crossword puzzle that everything works through the grandeur of God and through the beneficence and the multiplicity of nature. And there is a kind of appalling logic whereby the, the, the what get called the dark sonnets or the sonnets of desolation, which he writes in Dublin, where he was unbelievably miserable. He was marking 1,800, 1,800 exam papers. Can you imagine that? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, just drudgery. And he was living in a place where he died of typhoid and there were kind of rats in the kitchen. Uh, and also his patriotism came out there. He didn't like the Irish. He didn't like the Irish in Liverpool um, because, of course, a lot of the you know Irish in Liverpool were Catholics. And he didn't he, I have to be frank about it. He, he wasn't. And he he didn't like um, the whole sort of Fenian movement. Um, uh, and the Irish didn't seem to like him very much. And possibly, I think, is it Helen Vendler suggests he might have been bipolar in some ways, that there's a kind of depressive aspect to his cycles of exhilaration and then the downside. Uh, But these poems, I remember reading them as an adolescent, and they do take your breath away, and they are in their kind of frankness and the ways in which they um, conjugate or parse absence. And it's the absence not just of a, of a lover, it's the absence of, of all that makes life meaningful, of God. So the lover, love language is used, but there's nothing since, I don't know, John Donne's St. Lucy's Day to compare with I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. So we should just fill in a little bit of the backstory there, shouldn't we? So, so the next posting he gets, um, he goes to, he's sent to Glasgow, he goes back to Roehampton, he goes back on Stonyhurst again, and then the final posting he gets is to Dublin where he's the professor of Greek at um, the new university college in Dublin. And as you say, although that sounds quite a grand um, and established post, in fact, it was an extraordinary onerous post with with vast amounts of marking, which he set about with um, utterly scrupulous attention, um, agonising over you know, f- fractions of marks out of a hundred over over the you know the, the the transcription or slight mistranscription of a Greek word or so. And in this in this point of uh, his life, uh, by eighteen eighty five, he's in a very bad way, isn't he? he? Talks to friends about a deep fit of nervous prostration, and a little bit later, he describes my state as much like madness. Mm. And when he sends these poems to Bridges, one of the reasons we have so many of these poems is because he sends them to Bridges and Bridges curates them, doesn't he, as a, as, a, as it were, as um, Hopkins's editor before. He actually sees them into print. And he says to, uh, Hopkins says to Bridges of one of these poems, if ever, ever anything was written in blood, one of these was. So these really are, to go back to your original analogy with 
Lowell or Plath or you know the the, the, the confessional school of the sixties America. This is part of that same kind of um, not quite primal scream because it's still extremely controlled, isn't it? But part of that very raw kind of um, confessionalism. And I think while doctrinally you can understand that to lament the absence of God is part of the overall exp- religious experience, that it's not necessarily an anti an, an, an anti-Catholic uh, sort of um, cry from the soul. But they are sort of, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, they do have that primal power. Uh, to seem the stranger lies my lot, my life among strangers. Father and mother dear, brother and sisters are in Christ, not near. And he, my peace, my parting, sword and strife. So Christ, you know, I don't... My, my parents won't talk to me. My brothers and sisters won't talk to me. I've given it all up for Christ... And he's not, he's gone. He's not here. Um, and um, England, whose honour, all my heart woos, wife to my creating thought, would neither hear me were I pleading, plead nor do I. I weary of idle a being, but by where wars are rife. I am in Ireland now. <laughs> to Ireland eyes, Donald Bain puts it in Macbeth. Now I am at a third remove. Not but in all removes I can. Kind love both give and get. Only what word wisest my heart breeds, dark heaven's baffling ban, bars or hell's spell thwarts. This to hoard unheard, here unheeded, leaves me a lonely began. I've never seen that word used as a noun before, began. Um, so that's a complaint, isn't it? I mean, it, it is really um, uh, unnerving to have given everything up and to feel betrayed in this way. It's also, um, uh, and I'm sure self-consciously, uh, it's a poetry coming out of exactly the opposite inspiration to where all of the earlier poems came from. So all of the earlier poems came from an extraordinary sense of, of the exuberance of natural creation. Even within the terrible, dark circumstances of the Deutschland wreck, still nature's exciting because of what it's doing. Uh, and at this, and at these points, in these last uh, terrible so- sonnets, um, nature is in, in, entirely uninspiring, isn't it? But then the curious thing is that he managed to write a poetry out of that state. Yes, I mean it, they become kind of self conjugations that they look inside and they just find cliff after cliff of emptiness or voids, and that he himself is his own kind of worst enemy. I am gall, I am heartburn, God's most deep decree, bitter would have me taste, my taste was me. So it's kind of solipsism turned into a kind of vertiginous, and again, this does seem a terribly 20th century existential kind of vertiginous experience um, in which you're spiralling into a kind of absence after absence, and you're just finding new metaphors to conjugate that absence, but it only makes it more kind of uh, 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 perilous and, and lacking in footholds. That's true. I suppose the only thing about it that doesn't feel completely modern is that there's no suggestion at any point that God doesn't exist, is there? He, uh, um, I mean, his faith in that sense is rock, rock solid. And, and the, the awfulness of these poems is that believing in God doesn't bring any consolation because God's not being good to him. <laughs> but it's kind of imagining his own damnation at the yeah. end of I Wake and Feel... Uh, self-yeast of spirit, a dull doe sours. I see the lost are like this, uh, and they're scourged to be, as I am mine, they're sweating selves. But worse, 
Um, it's odd that El- Eliot says that he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not a religious poet. Hopkins isn't a religious poet in the way that Baudelaire is a religious poet. You know, because Baudelaire was man enough to be damned. But I think in these poems, Hopkins is saying, yes, it might not work out for me afterwards. Um, or certainly that the vision of hell is not one exclusively reserved for Protestants or atheists, uh, that he can imagine himself somehow participating in, in those agonies. It's also drawing upon a romantic tradition, isn't it? Um, uh, one of the poems that I think is behind these um, these extraordinary sonnets is Coleridge's Dejection and Ode, which is all about the failure of natural vision mm. to sustain your religious sensibility or your religious um, consciousness. And when in uh, this extraordinary poem called Thou Art Indeed Just Lord, uh, he, he writes things like, See banks and breaks now, levered how thick, laced they are again with fretty chervil. Look, and fresh wind shakes them, birds build, but not I build, no, but strain, time's eunuch, and not breed one work that wakes. Mine, O thou Lord of life, send my roots rain. Um, and these are lines that are actually describing his inability to write something that will last. And yet, in a weird kind of paradox, of course, these are some of the lines that have lasted best. And they're making use of the kind of Shakespearean sonnet sort of paradoxes, aren't they, about art in in that sense? Um, but and times eunuch is the kind of phrase one might find in in a kind of uh, Shakespeare sonnet. But he kind of means it as well, doesn't he? Um, and it, it is kind of heartbreaking in that you you can't help reading his over the trajectory of his overall life as somebody who was bet on this particular vision of life, or it's been the one which he has. Uh, invested himself in committed everything and somehow the returns aren't being delivered it's like the marine insurance you know the wreck has happened but no one is paying out Uh, and the wreck of of hopkins's own health which helen vender is very kind of explicit about or she she kind of summarizes from the index all his illnesses and she kind of lists them in that passage and it's one thing after another uh, which he suffers from um operation for his piles adult circumcision uh, and then the endless series of, um, of 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 illnesses that beset him um and i think the loneliness is what also is quite painful to read in in the norman white biography or the or the robert martin biography that in dublin he really is a lonely began that there's no one there who understands what he's about all he's got is this lifeline to bridges uh, and dixon through the letters um and the eccentricity is is somehow not kind of you know um, funny old Hopkins. It's like who is this nutter? Uh, and uh, uh, and he sort of finished. I mean, the the last poem that is addressed to 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 Bridges um, also suggests that his muse has left him. That some like times eunuch. That that somehow the, the sense in which all his poetry was a way of praising God, even that's been taken away from him. Um, why don't we end with that poem? Why don't yeah. you read that to us? The fine delight that fathers thought, the strong spur, live and lancing like the blowpipe flame, breathes once and, quenched faster than it came, leaves yet the mind a mother of immortal song. Nine months she then, nay, years, nine years she long within her wares, bears, cares, and combs the same. 
the widow of an insight lost, she lives with aim now known and hand at work now never wrong. Sweet fire, the sire of muse, my soul needs this. I want the one rapture of an inspiration. Oh, then, if in my lagging lines you miss the roll, the rise, the carol, the creation, my winter world that scarcely breathes that bliss now yields you, with some sighs, our explanation. This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.